This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour of the Bible line. So pleased that you can be with us for the next 60 minutes. And if you have a question as you've been studying God's word that you'd like to discuss today, you can feel free to call us and you can go on the air live or you can dictate your question. And that 843 South Carolina Exchange is 525 1859. That will get you through. Uh, many people choose to email their questions here into the studio. And the email address is uh, TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. And again, uh, we're here to help. Maybe there's an issue in your life that you're looking for biblical counsel on, uh, an issue in your ministry, in your local assembly, or just a theological thorny problem that you're studying in Scripture. If I can help, by God's grace, I will. Again, 843-525-1859 or toll-free. We have people who listen through the Internet at wagp.net. And so we can be heard around the world. So if you have friends in other parts of the country where there's no Christian radio or there's only a Christian radio music format, which sadly is what's happened to many Christian stations across the nation, tell them they can listen at wagp.net anytime, anywhere in the world. And for people in other states, if you want to use a toll-free number, it's 877, the call letters, WAGP 980. Well, Rick, I know more questions come in than we can answer, but let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. All right. Very good, Pastor. I just uh, hung up from a listener who wanted to know what might be a good children's Bible that he could get for his grandchild. That's a great question. Two that I would recommend. One is called the Picture Bible. Now, there's many, many children's Bibles with that title. Uh, So the title is not copyrighted, The Picture Bible, but the one you want is put out by David C. Cook Publications, David C. Cook Publications, and it's now in a number of languages. It's probably one of the most accurate children's Bibles. Children's Bibles tend to go in one of two directions. They either dumb down the text so much that there's really no content, or they go to the other extreme where maybe they're marvelously illustrating you, oh, you love the pictures but it's too complex for a child. And so when you're dealing with someone really anywhere from three to uh, eight or nine years of age, uh, that is a great one. The other one's called the Action Bible. By the way, both of these are available at Community Bible Church in our bookstore, the Action Bible, and uh, that is also very, very well done. What I'd like, to, what I'd like to do when our children were growing up, and by the way, I still read these to our grandchildren uh, as they got older. One to enhance reading skills, we'd have an older child read the Bible study that night, 
Or as they got older and we had, again, five children, we might say, well, let's read it from the children's Bible, and then we'll go read it out of the real Bible. And the great thing about the one that's done on David C. Cook is every section is indexed. Oh, this is from 1 Samuel 15 or whatever it might be. Then you can go back and read it and quote-unquote the real Bible and say, well, what, what did we learn? What did we pick up that it didn't come out in the children's Bible? And the good thing about a children's Bible like that is we'll give a child an overview of the whole Scripture. And so they'll get a feel before they leave your home of the whole Scripture. Generally speaking, we went through the children's Bible with our children about five times uh, when they were in our home. Anyway, uh, let's go to the next question, Rick. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. We've got Faye from Springfield on the air. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Go Good ahead. morning. Hey, Faye. Um, I wanted to say, heard your message Sunday morning about James. I'm excited about it. Oh, great. Um, and you gave so much informa- great information, background knowledge. Anyway, I'm excited about walking through that with you. But my question today is in regards to Hebrews 10, 26. Okay. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Have a disc- I'm in the middle, you might say, of a discussion with a friend that is trying to realize that you, you could lose your salvation, and she brought this to my attention. Well, let me and say— Of yeah, course, let- I look back up at mm-hmm. in that— in Hebrews 10, where it talks about, and um, I will remember no more. But anyway, can you clarify for us, please, about Hebrews ten twenty six? Great question. So let me just first say, parenthetically, you may not be aware of it, but I have preached the entire book of Hebrews, verse by verse by verse, and not everyone listening knows that... Um, we have a radio ministry called Search the Scriptures. You hear it locally, but it actually broadcasts on a number of different stations. And uh, they have an app that goes with that, and it's called STS. If you go to the App Store and just type in Search the Scriptures, you'll find that, uh, I think, a very useful uh, little tool that will help you to find your way around uh, different passages. So if you say, oh, yeah, I wonder if Pastor Brogy ever preached in Hebrews, you could go do a scripture search and say, oh, yeah, he did the book of Hebrews, and he's got tons of sermons. He walked through the whole book verse by verse by verse, and then you could go click on Hebrews 10 and that section of scripture, and you would soon discover that, oh, yes, here it is. Uh, let me listen to what he has to say, and maybe that would be useful to you. Now, again, the um, best interpreter of scripture is Scripture itself. And so whenever you're studying a passage of Scripture, you want to look at it in the broader context of which it's written, but also within the context of the whole of Scripture. And so um, recently I actually did a, um, a couple of messages because we were talking about spiritual growth uh, from um, just on the subject of spiritual gifts. And so I, I dealt with Hebrews chapters five and six, in fact, recently did three messages on that. And one of the things I drew out was the fact that um, the scripture teaches the eternal security of the believer and even the book of Hebrews. Uh, there are about 150 passages in the New Testament that teach what we would often 
paraphrase is once saved, always saved. Now, unfortunately, that phrase has been abused. People say, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, I can live however I want. And obviously, the New Testament does not teach that. It teaches that um, once a person is saved, if indeed they are genuinely converted, then their life will show it. And if their life doesn't show it, it just means that they've never met the Lord in a life-changing way. But a good principle of Scripture is if you believe the Spirit of God inspired the whole of Scripture, then um, obviously he's not going to make any mistakes. He is going to do it uh, perfectly without a single error. And so when you read the warning passages in the um, book of Hebrews, they need to be read in light of the fact that he has already affirmed the doctrine of eternal security, uh, that you cannot lose your salvation. And so uh, there's a number of places that I address in that message, uh, in those three messages I did on Hebrews 5 and 6, that where the writer himself affirms eternal security. For instance, in Hebrews 7, verse 25, hence also he, Christ, is able to save forever those who draw near. Again, a verse that affirms eternal security. Uh, for by one offering he has perfected, Hebrews ten fourteen for all time those who are sanctified. So even within this chapter, for all time he has perfected. Um, he'll affirm in Hebrews 13 and verse 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You already mentioned your sins and his lawless deeds. I will remember no more. That is, he'll not hold them against you. And so when you read the warning passage here in Hebrews chapter 10, it needs to be read in light of that. And he's dealing with Jewish believers. And this is an armchair question, and it's really an hour-long answer. Um, So I'm just going to give you the brief answer, but I'm going to send you to the Search the Scriptures app. If you haven't downloaded it, you can do it on your smartphone and listen to the whole message. But let me hit kind of a couple of broad principles that are really important. He is writing to Jewish people who are converted. They have come to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, remember, he came to his own, and his own received him not, speaking of the Jewish people. But as many as received him, to them he's given the right to become children of God. It's not that all Jews rejected Christ. God has always had a remnant. And so, but the majority of Jews did. And so what did that mean if you were a Jewish Christian, which is not an oxymoron? It meant you were going to be persecuted. Uh, You can't change your Jewishness any more than you can change any other ethnicity when you become a believer. So there were Jewish Christians. In fact, they weren't even called Christians at first. It's not until the Gentiles in Antioch, where the believers were first called Christians, there were other terms that were used to describe these Jews who followed after Jesus. But if you were a Jew, you were rejected, and it meant your business would be uh, boycotted. It meant that (coughs) you could not have any fellowship maybe in your home with other Jews. You would be ostracized, and on and on it went. And so uh, what some of the believers did is they said, well, we'll look Jewish, but we won't really be Jewish. And so to do that, they go back and they practice the sacrificial system so they can still go to the temple and identify outwardly as Jewish. And so he gives these various warnings, five at least, some would count six, throughout, and you are highlighting one of the warning passages. For instance, uh, he'll say in Hebrews 2 and verse 3, how will we escape if we neglect, not reject, but if we neglect so great a salvation. 
And again, in um, Hebrews, <coughs> excuse me, four, he speaks about let us fear while um, he says, therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, anyone may come short of it. And, and so he's speaking, having illustrated with those Jews who were at Kadesh Barnea, God had given them a promise. They were to go into the promised land in their unbelief. They believed the majority report rather than what God said was true. And because of that, they wandered in the wilderness and it was impossible to renew them to repentance, which is what Hebrews 6 highlights. And so we find a very similar thing here, that there is severe discipline that comes on the believer who mocks God in his unbelief. That's the short answer. I'm going to send you to the uh, Hebrews app and the Search the Scriptures app, the book of Hebrews. Look in chapter 10. I have an hour-long message carefully delineating each of these phrases. Good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line. And, and I should say, too, for Faye, um, Faye, I am doing a course. We call it the Discovery Class at Community Bible Church, um, but it's being taught under the label right now, Basic Discipleship. And because we have so many new believers, we usually have anywhere from 60 to 100 people in the two discovery classes we offer both hours, but we can't offer them due to the virus right now. But God is still bringing people to Christ. Several came to Christ on Sunday, and so we have to have a facility in which to help these new believers. So I'm putting online all those messages. So there are five weeks under the title Basic Discipleship called The Eternal Security of the Believer. And there's a handout that goes with that that you can download online and you could walk through with your friend and it's just foolproof. Look, there's about 10 passages in the Bible that seemingly teach you can lose your salvation. Well, obviously they need to be read in context because there's 150 that teach the opposite. And so I walk through these kinds of issues in that handout that I think would be of great help to your friend. Go ahead, Rick. Okay, well, this uh, next question, actually, I'm going to read the two questions together okay. because they're kind of uh, timely. Uh, Amy in Okinawa, Japan writes, there seems to be a lot of debate about the safety of the possible coronavirus vaccine. Could you please share your views on the subject? And then John W. writes, I have a question for you regarding the vaccine for the COVID-19, and I'm hoping you might be willing to give an opinion. I've heard some Christians who make a good case that we should not receive the vaccine because of the new technology. The design of the mRNA vaccine is to insert genetically modified code instructions into the human cells, potentially changing our God-given DNA. And it might contain an enzyme called luciferase. To, sh- uh, to show proof of vaccination. Also, that the repercussions of not taking the vaccine could mean losing your job, ability to buy and sell, and even being uh, given criminal charges. I'm concerned that some of these claims might be true. Have you heard any of this before? Do you think this is something we should consider when deciding whether or not to get the vaccine when it becomes available? Also, do you think this could in any way relate to the deception by pharmakia spoken of in Revelation 18:23? Well, it's a it's a good question, and I'm sure many more will come up, especially in the months ahead like these. Typically, when something happens on a national level, there's numerous conspiracy theories. And sometimes, hey, look, some of these Christian ministries out there, many of which are fake, build their whole 
uh, ministry in their fundraising in turn, which makes some of these preachers super wealthy, on conspiracy theories and on extremism and emotionalism, but not based in sound theology. So there's a premise here, like, you know, in some underhanded way, one conspiracy theory is that if you take the vaccine, you're taking the mark of the beast. Now, I will say that I think there are some things that are interesting that are unfolding in our day that we should pay attention to. One uh, very well-known pollster uh, indicated recently that 28% of Americans believe that uh, Bill Gates wants to use these vaccines to implant microchips in people. And um, amongst Republicans, the figure, because there's a lot of Christians in the Republican Party, the figure goes up to 44%. Well, what Mr. Gates said is that um, through the vaccine, he suggested that we might have some digital certificates. And people took that to mean some kind of microchip implant. And of course, when he clarified what he was speaking of was a technology by which you can put a a special, (coughs) excuse me, ink that is uh, put on the person's skin at the time of injection to show that they've received the vaccine and therefore they can travel or whatever it is. And and I'll tell you, uh, there's a number of countries who've already announced it, that you will not be able to travel to their country unless you have a green passport, which is defined as a passport demonstrating that you've been vaccinated. And again, let's suppose, you know, we've got COVID-19, suppose COVID-20 comes out, you know, and some people are saying that this thing could mutate and we could run through this thing all over again. You can see potentially how the governments of the world could use something like this vaccine to control people in order, (coughs) I'm sorry, in order to set the world up for a, a larger ultimate, not a conspiracy, but a reality, reality, and that is the mark of the beast. So let me just say this. In Revelation 13, one of the central passages that deal with the coming of the Antichrist, and specifically the mark of the beast, and he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free man and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. And that no one, or he provides, you could add, that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, uh, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. And here then is wisdom, he says, let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number of that man is 666. So there is coming a day where when it says he causes all, please understand, let Scripture interpret Scripture. This is not against your will, like he's going to make you take the mark of the beast. No, this is a willful choice because he goes on to say that people who will not take the mark of the beast later on in the Revelation, they're going to be beheaded. Why? Because of a choice they made. But in what sense does he cause someone? Well, if you want to be able to function in the world, if you want to be able to buy food, if you want to be able to do whatever you want to do in this seven-year tribulation period— Without the mark of the beast, which is initiated in the midpoint of the tribulation, that's when it happens. Halfway through, you won't be able to buy or sell anything without the mark of the beast. And so you can see how somebody like Gates says, okay, we want to make sure someone has been vaccinated, so we're not going to put some, 
you know, um, literal physical tattoo across their forehead that, you know, people might not want to wear, but we'll put an invisible mark on there. And they already have the technology for this. And yes, they have the technology for microchips uh, in order to be able to uh, add money to your bank account or to deposit money. So there's all kinds of technologies out there. It might just be a literal physical tattoo that you can see. Could be invisible. But please understand, it's not some trick. It's not like, oh, you know, uh, they're injecting into me, you know, a microchip, and now I'm under the control of the governments of the world. And it's nothing like that. We're talking about something in the future that man willfully chooses and when he willfully chooses Antichrist, he is willfully rejecting the Lord Jesus. Now, let me say something, because I know we have a generation of people who are in their 20s and 30s who did not live through what my parents lived through in terms of vaccinations. You know, there was a lot of diseases when I helped start a church in Savannah. I'd go down there every week and share the gospel and so on and so forth years ago, and There was a lady in that congregation who had polio, and she lived kind of out in the sticks of Georgia, and she missed the polio vaccination. And, of course, she had to walk with with AIDS. Um, Listen, if you lived through the polio era, I had a professor at Dallas Seminary, Dr. Stan Toussaint, and he had polio as a child. And he walked, you know, really in a very less than steady fashion. A godly man, loved Christ, he's in heaven today. Um, but, you know, most of us haven't lived through that era where we had these diseases because the American nation was so vaccinated. And so now some of these young couples think, oh, you know, vaccinations, they're of the devil, and we don't want to take them. And they'd think a whole lot differently if they lived in the era where, where there were no vaccinations and people had all kinds of disabilities and sometimes, yes, even death because they were not available. And so this vaccination is not an evil thing. It's a good thing. And people ask me, I jokingly said, you know, I pointed out one of my church members because it came up. You know, I'm getting questions a lot on this now. And, yeah, I'll take it. After Rick Forstner takes it, uh, we'll see how he does after three weeks. You know, no, I'm going to take the vaccination. I don't have any, you know, qualms in terms of the procedure that has unfolded. What I love is what President Trump has done and that he has really fast-paced this and removed all the red tape. And so instead of taking four years, it's uh, taken 10 months. And today, the first vaccines are being given in Great Britain. Uh, We should have them here since we spent all the money here in America. We gave the billions of dollars to these different countries, I mean to these different pharmaceutical um, companies in which to fast-track this thing. So it should be here first, but... And there's a meeting today unfolding this very issue. But the fact of the matter is that it's gone through a safe process. And let me just say to the person that wrote this question, they're a younger couple. And so you're not going to be able to get it until probably 30 million people have gotten it. First, it's going to be, you know, all of the people who deal with uh, folks in the hospitals. And it's kind of sad right now. You know, there are hospitals right now a hospital yesterday in Kansas, they couldn't admit any more people. Uh, The ICU beds were full. Um, All the beds were full. In fact, so many of their doctors and nurses were sick 
they don't have enough medical personnel to deal with the folks who are sick. So this thing is like really timely in terms of it coming. And I, and I think it will probably get worse here in the next few months. I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but it just certainly makes logical sense. Uh, and so it's a real virus. And people say, well, the death rate is low. Well, it is. It's certainly lower than when we started. But if more people get it, that just means more Americans are going to be sick. We have more people in the hospital right now than at any other time in the last hundred years in America. And so there's a lot of sick people filling hospital beds across the nation. And we're hitting records over the last week of the daily number of people who are dying. So the medical personnel, then older people, and then those in their 70s, those in their 60s. So the two families that ask the questions that are far younger, uh, you're, you're going to have uh, 30 million people who will kind of test it for you. But this is not some demonic trick. That's just these wacko Christians. And, and I'll tell you who a lot of them are. It's the health wealth people. Because, you see, they've lost a lot of their audiences right now. Uh, these guys, you know, like Kenneth Copeland, who drives around in his $100 million airplane uh, and all this stuff, they've lost their crowd. So they're, they're doing some really dramatic things to be able to get folks to listen and to give money. And there are the people who are postulating this, some really wacko women preachers who shouldn't be preaching because they're in violation of Scripture. And, and I can start naming names here, but these are the folks who are uh, postulating these conspiracy theories against uh, our government. But could this be a predecessor to what we're going to be see in the future? Absolutely. It's going to happen. It will happen in the future. So you can see how the groundwork is being laid. But is this the mark of the beast? Of course not. It can't be because the Antichrist is not here. And the Antichrist cannot be here until the restrainer is removed. The Holy Spirit's presence in the church is removed. And when he is removed, all evil is going to break loose. And then we're going to really see how someone uh, like this one world leader that the Scripture mentions will be able to step to the plate and get some things done that he wants to get done. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Alberto from Savannah has emailed a question. He writes, the Bible teaches believers should only date and marry other believers. I've been going to church for many years. I go to learn about Christ and Scripture. I don't go looking for women to date. Besides, I've noticed over the years of attending different churches in different states that many women are divorced with children. Also, many times they are biblically illiterate. Most of them attend just looking for a man, not the Lord. I know the Bible says that uh, don't date unbelievers, but what's the difference? Just because they accept Christ, then suddenly it's okay to date them or marry them, not knowing what baggage or secrets they bring with them. To me, it's all the same monkey with a different clothing. What are your thoughts? <laughs> all right. I never right. heard that expression before. Uh, well, you know. Oh, well, hey, by the way. Yeah. Uh, remember Dr. Toussaint's parrot jokes? Oh, yes. Uh, he, he had he, a bunch of them. He did. He did. I heard him in seminary for four years. <laughs> he was trust great. Me. Yeah, he was. He was. You know, Jesus, it's interesting what you say. Well, some of these women go, they've lost their husbands, they're looking for someone to marry, and it really dovetails with what Jesus said about divorce in Matthew chapter 5. He said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman, the lust at her has committed adultery. So he deals with it on that level. And then he also speaks in Matthew chapter 5, that um, when someone divorces his wife, he causes her 
to commit adultery. In what sense? A woman loses her security. She loses her head. And so she looks for a man to build that security. So he helps to contribute to the evil. But God's clear in reference to a believer marrying an unbeliever, and you've got that. For we are the temple of the living God, just as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I'm reading from Second Corinthians 6, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, for I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. Uh, likewise, in First Corinthians 7, he specifies clearly we should only marry in the Lord. That is, we should only marry another believer. And it's a principle that unfolds in the Old Testament where God told the Jewish people, you marry within the nation of Israel. That didn't mean they couldn't marry a Gentile, but if that Gentile was a believer in the God of Israel, it was okay. And that was the principle. It was not a violation against, you know, interracial marrying or anything like that. It was an issue of, is the person you are marrying a believer? And typically to marry a Gentile was to marry an unbeliever in the uh, Jewish nation. But with that said, it's not like, well, she's a Christian, therefore I, she's a potential candidate. Well, she might be, she might not be. Um, it's important that you look at the whole package. That is, you know, are her values reflective, <coughs> excuse me, are her values reflective of biblical truth? And vice versa, are his values reflective of biblical truth? And these are important questions you need to ask and answer. And this is why I won't marry anyone unless there's a minimum of six one-hour appointments of counseling. And there's a seventh appointment, which is the introductory appointment. So really, they have seven appointments with me. And they have about 20 hours worth of homework. Why? Because I want to address these issues up front. And if this is not something that I can do, I want to know it. Uh, I want to know whether I'm not in the marrying business. I'm in the business of building Christian homes. And so I want some young couple to really understand what God says about marrying a fellow believer in the Lord and what are the expectations that he has on the husband and the wife and what should happen when children enter in, you know, and so on and so forth. And if you don't address these issues up front, Or if you choose someone and you haven't even asked these questions, you know, one guy said to me, you know, I married this woman only to find out she doesn't want children. I said, you you, you didn't even ask this question. It's not a matter of she can have children, but she doesn't want children. You didn't ask that. Didn't the, did you get any pastoral counseling or, you know, I had a baby and I just assumed my wife was going to stay home and raise that baby. And she only to find out is a real career woman and she wants to put the baby in childcare. You didn't ask that. You didn't study Titus chapter two about the role that a woman has. First Timothy chapter two as well. The role a woman has in raising and nurturing and bringing that child up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. So these are important questions. And that's why and, you know, this brother who wrote from Savannah, he's asked a lot of questions. But my sense is he's in a weak church because some of the issues that he raises up that are happening in his church are indicative of a weak church that's not being taught sound doctrine. And when you have a weak church, though they may have the gospel, you'll have weak people. And so what you may be seeing reflected is just people, I just want to get married as long as he's a Christian. I, I want to get married. 
And that just means that the people really are not trained and grounded in Scripture, and you might need to find another church. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next. All right, we just got an anonymous caller from Hampton, South Carolina, wanting to know, can a non-believer always be going around talking about Jesus and quoting Jesus? Absolutely. You know, Jesus actually um, draws an illustration in Matthew chapter 7 where he brings the Sermon on the Mount to a close, and he warns us to beware of false teachers who come to you in sheep's clothing, but he reminds us that inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And so he tells us that we are to enter through the narrow gate, not the broad gate, of the false teacher, but through the narrow gate of Scripture, because the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many people who follow these false teachers, and they enter through it. And then he says the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And so he's warning us against these false prophets. And just to underscore how Christian they can look, and this is the way the devil comes. He doesn't typically come and say, I'm a false prophet. I'm here to lead you to hell. No, he disguises himself as an angel of light, and so don't his ministers, Paul will tell us in 2 Corinthians. And so Jesus doesn't go for some, you know, oh, average testimony, but he goes for the most dramatic testimony that someone might display, and then he'll say, this person never met me. He says, not everyone who says to me, Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Why? Because good works are the fruit of salvation. James will say, faith without works is dead. James is not dealing with the root of conversion, but the fruit of conversion. You are saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. We are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's God's gift, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast or brag, and then he'll say, for we are his workmanship created in in Christ Jesus for good works, onto good works. So we're not saved by good works, but we're saved to do good works. And so you can have someone who outwardly, you know, has certain Christian manifestations, but inwardly they live a different lifestyle. So not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father is in heaven. Many, not a few, but many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles? And by the way, these three things, preaching in Jesus' name, casting out demons in his name, and doing miracles in his name, there are biblical examples in the New Testament and in the Old Testament of an unbeliever doing these very things. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Not I once knew you, but I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So anonymous from Hampton, yes, a non-believer can talk all about Jesus, speak about Jesus, and still be lost and on their way to hell. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right. Uh, Last week, this question came in from Sean, who lives in Beaufort. After the church is raptured, all believers are removed from the earth. Before God calls the 144,000, there is the seal of the martyrs. Who evangelized the martyrs? Well, um, the 144,000, they're mentioned in two principal uh, passages in the Revelation, Revelation 7 and Revelation 14. Uh, the, the, the outline for the book of Revelation is given in Revelation 119, 
And uh, the third section is the after these things section. And so in Revelation 4, he says, after these things. So you know right off, oh, we're in the third part of the outline that he mentioned in Revelation 119. I looked and beheld a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice that I heard, like the sound of a trumpet, uh, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place. Again, metatata, after these things. So from here on out, you don't see the church mentioned until Jesus comes back at his second coming. Why? Because the church is raptured. And so the question is often asked, well, who are these 144,000 and how are they converted? Now, there are some Christian brothers who spiritualize the 144,000. And, uh, well, there are, I should say, first, there are cults like the Jehovah's Witness who initially said only 144,000 people would be saved. And so they sold themselves on that. And then they started breaking the 144,000 numbers and they couldn't grow anymore. And so then they changed their doctrine, and you can easily document this in their own documents that uh, they will hide from you, but fortunately we have them, and um, they later said, well, the 144,000 are a special class of Jehovah's Witness who have a special leadership role. It has nothing to do with Jehovah's Witnesses, nor do some of my Christian brothers uh, there was an article that came out some time ago in the Gospel Coalition, and the writer, who's a good guy, I I, I know him, he he has the gospel, um, but he said the 144,000 are not Jewish people ethnically, but just servants of God, the saints of God. No, it's not. He's talking about Jewish people. So I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And he goes and he enumerates the tribes and the 12,000 from each tribe. And and then after he sees this, he looks and he sees a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne who come to faith in Jesus during the tribulation because of the witness and testimony of the 144,000 Jewish people. So how are they uh, saved? People say, well, if the church is removed, and, which has been the testimony, and they've been raptured, and clearly they are, then how can the Holy Spirit work? Well, the Holy Spirit worked before the church was started on the day of Pentecost. He's always been at work. He's omnipresent, and he'll be at work during the time of the tribulation. He won't be at work through the church. And so when you see the term saints in the New Testament, you need to distinguish the category. Is it a reference to Old Testament saints who didn't even know that Messiah's name would be Yeshua, Jesus? Is it a reference to church saints? Is it a reference to tribulation saints? And this is important. And by the way, if you're listening for the first time, I have about 75 hours of verse by verse by verse teaching on the book of Revelation. I think they're airing it right now on Search the Scriptures. But if you get the Search the Scriptures app, you can listen to every single message that I've, excuse me, done here in the book of Revelation. So uh, how are the 144,000 converted? Well, number one, the Holy Spirit will be at work. And uh, while God doesn't specify how they're saved, I mean, think about it. Think about these um, Christians who go to Israel every year and they're preaching Jesus and the Orthodox are listening sometimes. I've... I've seen Orthodox Jews either despise evangelicals who are in Israel. Most don't. Most don't because they realize the evangelical is their friend. 
that while they may not embrace New Covenant um, teaching, they still recognize that much of the freedoms that they are enjoying as Israeli Jews have come through presidents that have been favorable towards them, and that favorability often is driven by the evangelical church. With that said, there are other Jewish Orthodox people who are curious, and they're pondering things because they're hearing these preachers say things that they believe. Oh, yeah, that's taught in the Tanakh. That's taught in the Old Testament. And so they're connecting. And, of course, once the church is gone and millions of born-again evangelicals are no longer in, in Israel and they're missing across the world, they're going to start, hey, we must have missed it. And they're going to pour over the scriptures, and God is going to save 144,000. Now, it could happen that way, or it could happen like a Damascus Road experience like the Apostle Paul had, where on the road to Damascus, God just supernaturally um, works in his life and brings him to faith in Jesus. And God can see those 144,000. Now, it's not just 144,000 Jews who are saved, but 144,000 Jews who are saved and sealed and protected from any physical harm. And so at the, uh, at the end of the seven years, when you come to Revelation 14, then I looked and behold, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion. That's where the Temple Mount is. That's the true Mount Zion. And with him, 144,000 having his name in the name of his father written on their foreheads. And again, because of their testimony, and not just their testimony, the two witnesses that God will raise up during this time, and an angel, the only time in human history God will use an angel to preach the gospel. Millions and millions of people will hear about Jesus, and the Great Commission will be fulfilled. You know, sometimes Christians say, well, you know, we're, we have to reach every tribe and tongue and nation before Jesus can come back. Well, that's our commission. We're doing everything in our power to do that in obedience to the commission, but we're not going to pull it off, but God will pull it off during the seven-year period. So when Jesus says the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. If you look at the Olivet Discourse contextually, he's speaking about what is taking place in the first half of the tribulation. Verse 15 describes a midpoint event where the Antichrist comes into a new prominence, defiles the holy place, calls himself God. You've got to take the mark of the beast at that point. And then the second half of Matthew 24, what happens in the second part? It, I mean, it fits perfectly. And so um, God is going to pull it off among through, among others, the 144,000, such that people in every tribe, tongue, and nation, look, the majority of the world will follow Antichrist. And people who've heard the gospel prior to the rapture will not believe in Jesus. The Bible says God will send a deluding influence, 2 Thessalonians 2, that they might believe what is false. But people who have never heard the gospel before in clarity and power, millions upon millions, likened to the sand of the seashore, will be converted during this final seven-year time frame in human history and believe that Jesus is Lord. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and I've got a little housekeeping question. You had mentioned before the program that you had uh, rearranged some of the questions, and 
Uh, apparently, it didn't save, so I'm not sure okay. whether this one was one of those questions because it does have a link to an article, and I didn't know if you'd read No, this is fine. We get okay. so many questions in, and before I come in, you know, sometimes it's like, well, if I answer this question, I won't answer seven others because it's an armchair question. And sometimes I feel like, well, I don't have a sermon I can direct you to, so I'll say, Rick, answer this one or don't answer this one. But you can go ahead and answer that one. I mean, ask that question, and I'll try to And I just read the article, so I've got those particular links if you need. So uh, Amy from Lafayette, Indiana writes, My family is having difficulty proving from God's word that homosexuality is a sin. One of my family members is using an article written by Tim Brewster, a United Methodist pastor, as a strong stance that the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. He cites several passages that believers use to call homosexuality sin, then says those passages actually don't teach what we think it teaches. Any help would be appreciated. And then she gives the link to the article, and I've looked at the article now. Sure. So there are always false teachers who... Uh, twist the scriptures to quote the Apostle Peter to their own destruction. And, of course, the United Methodist Church uh, had a national conference, really an international conference, and when they held it, it was voted um, against uh, that they should not do homosexual marriages. And the reason it was voted against was not because of the American church, but because of the African church, where you have real, truly genuine, born-again Uh, Methodists in the continent of Africa, and they outvoted the American church. But 80% of the American pastors in the United Methodist Church in America are in favor of gay marriage in the wicked lifestyle. And the fact of the matter is, is that they are marrying gay people, and the book of common discipline that they use is not being exercised. And so it really means nothing. And they have announced recently that they're going to split And it's not official until their next meeting, and they'll even give some uh, financial monies to people who want to leave, you know, for their churches and so on and so forth. But listen, the United Methodist Church is basically a wicked apostate denomination in our day. And any Christian who's worth his salt who understands a little bit of Scripture understands that this is a place for biblical separation. They officially denounce the inerrancy of the Bible in every one of their seminaries. They say that, well, they may use the term inspired, though the Bible's inspired, but it's not inerrant. Well, if it's inspired and it's not inerrant, if it has errors in it, then you have to be inspired to see which verses are true and which are not. And so they take the verses and they twist the scriptures, like a couple of passages they will use. Ezekiel um, chapter 16, I just turned there. As I live, declares the Lord, Sodom your sister and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, uh, but did not help the needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. And so you'll hear these liberal pastors say, well, their sin was they lacked uh, hospitality. Well, let me just uh, look at this for a second. God outlines the sins of Sodom. The first sin he mentions is arrogance. You could render it pride. That's the sense of the Hebrew word. And the Bible teaches that God is opposed to the proud. And the New Testament quotes that verse from Proverbs. And uh, there are people today who are proud that will not admit their need. 
and they don't want to admit that they're a sinner. They don't want to call what God calls sin, and so they just redefine sin or redefine the Bible. Uh, It also says that they were guilty of abundant food, or you could render it fullness of bread more literally. That is, uh, all the needs that they had for the physical were being met. And so, much like Paul will say to the church at Philippi, their God has become their belly. You know, that's what God warned Israel of in uh, that final message that Moses gives before they go into the promised land. And he says, look, when you get into the promised land and you enjoy cisterns, uh, they're like holes dug in the ground where you can store water, cisterns that you didn't dig and vineyards that you didn't plant and houses that you didn't build, and you enjoy all this blessing, don't forget me. And that's kind of where we're at in America. We have so much abundance, we have just forgotten God. And so our God has become our belly, much like in Sodom. Careless ease, that is, they were, they were idle. And the, um, these, were, these were people who had basically too much food, and some of them had become lazy. And uh, that, that, that's a sad. But then he caps it all off with abominations. Thus they were haughty. Because of these things, here's some root problems that manifest itself thus... They were haughty and committed abominations. That's what happens when you forget God. You replace him with something else. And that's where we are in America. And that's where they are in the United Methodist Church. And what were these abominations? Ezekiel doesn't have to spell it out. He assumes his readers are familiar with what he has covered, what Moses covered in Genesis 19. Uh, They were guilty of the sin, among other things, of homosexuality. Second uh, Peter chapter 2 describes it. Jude 7 describes it. Le- Leviticus 18, for a man to lie with a man, it's an abomination. First Corinthians 6, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals shall inherit the kingdom of God. Of course, there's hope for anyone because he says, and such were some of you, but God saved you. So God can save a homosexual. Romans 1 calls it unnatural. But you've got guys like Peter Gnomes, who was the chaplain at Harvard. He died a few years ago. And he said, well, and again, they, they twist the scriptures to their own destruction. So he took a text like Romans 1. And I can show you what they do with all of them. I'm not going to take the time, but I will direct you to a message that I preached. Is it okay to be gay? I, I I preached it eight years ago. It's not for the faint of heart. It's one of my longer messages, like an hour and 20 minutes long. Um, But I walk through every single text in the Scripture, and I'm going to direct this caller to that. You can uh, type in YouTube, is it okay to be gay, Carl Brogy, and it will come up. I'm surprised they haven't removed it yet, but probably won't be there for long, the way they're they're looking through some of these uh, messages that are online. Therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies might be dishonored among them. <clears throat> they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So they're in this downward passion, uh, progress away from God. For this reason, God gave them to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for what was unnatural. And in the same way, the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire one towards another. Men with men committing indecent acts receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And so Peter Gnomes at Harvard said, well, what was unnatural was that if God created you as a homosexual uh, with a desire for a 
a bent for the same sex, as he would argue, and then you went heterosexual, then you're exchanging what was natural for what was unnatural. Or if God created you as a heterosexual and you went homosexual when he created you as heterosexual, then you were making this exchange. Well, that's not what the text is talking about. God doesn't create anyone with a heteros- with a homosexual desire, same-sex attraction. He calls that an abomination. He calls it unnatural. He uses all kinds of descriptive words uh, to underscore the wickedness of this sin. It is a wicked sin. And I don't care what the preachers are saying. We've got two Presbyterian churches in this side of the river in Beaufort County who are doing gay marriages. It's wicked. It's awful. It's it's. It's apostate. They are not Christians. Please understand, these are questions you need to ask and answer for yourself. So there's no ambiguity in the Scripture on this. God is very, very clear. Now, I say that, and I hold out the hand of grace, and that any gay person can be saved if they will change their mind, if they will say what God says about their sin, that this is a distortion. And look, I know there are different things that can uh, lead up to the sin of homosexuality. I deal with it in my office. Some adult man comes in and he tells me how he was sodomized by his uncle when he was five years old and had to deal with all this shame and didn't know how to get free of the shame. And so he ended up acting on it and started living the homosexual lifestyle. But listen, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So I hand, when I talk about this is evil, just like adultery for the heterosexual or fornication for the heterosexual is evil. I also hand, hold out the hand of grace that you can be forgiven if you will repent and believe in Jesus as Lord. Okay, well, uh, you've got about a minute and a half left, so um, I just wanted to kind of give a little context here. One of the things I found interesting as I read this article is this guy repeatedly um, quotes from the message, Eugene Peterson. Yeah. Uh, and that has its own issues, too. It is. Eugene Peterson, you know, sadly, navigators of all ministries, which has really had a great history historically, they, they, they put him forth as a great scholar. He was no great scholar of the languages just because he had learned Hebrew and Greek. And he produced a translation of the Bible that was heretical. He, he, he changed uh, many of the texts. Like, read 1 Corinthians 6 in the message. You will find that the word homosexual that is translating a Greek word is not even there. He left it out. How convenient. And so not a good translation that we should use. Anyway, we're out of time, but thank you today for being with us and for joining us for the Bible line. If you want to uh, pass this website on to other people, go to wagp.net and you can send it to a friend if it would be of help to them. God bless you as you walk with Christ. (music) 